0: Hello and welcome to the Some Podcast, where we learn about a Bible topic, character, or concept. And today we're going to learn about ethics and morality as we study the sermon, One Man's Sin, Another Man's Pleasure. As opposed to specific methods of worship, the Bible prescribes attitudes. And one of them is reverence.
1: When it comes to you being part of a community, because you're not expressing yourself as an individual then, but as a part of the community to which you belong. The
0: best testimony that you can give for God's life is not a bit of paper. The real testimony is the transformation of people's hearts. Hi, my name's Christopher, and ladies and gentlemen, you are in for a treat. Because today we have with us the veritable, the esteemed Mr. James Sullivan. Oh boy, esteemed, veritable, high expectations, Chris. (laughs) Well, I have the highest of standards for all of my guests. If you do not meet said standard, I
1: will replace you with Jai. Um, not Jai, you're kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding, Jai. You're good. You're good. You're cool, Jai. You're cool. However, you are old, so. Yeah. <laughs> How old is Jai?
0: Have a guess in the comments. We will send you a prize. Um,
1: <laughs> no, we won't. <laughs> well, I don't know. We could send like a free Bible or something. I don't know. Free Bible.
0: Okay. That's a great okay. price. If you can guess
1: Jai's age, we may or may not send you a free Bible. And by
0: free Bible, I mean we'll send you a link to Bible Gateway. <laughs> that's. Yeah. That's, yeah. uh.
1: Yeah, it's you can. Technically re- a free Bible, maybe. Free Bible for everyone.
0: Actually, no. Um, all listeners, please go to your nearest bedside drawer. Yes, that is a Gideon's Bible. You get a Gideon's and you get a Gideon's. <laughs> How did it get there? The Lord works in mysterious ways. That's this is true. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. Well, yeah. look, uh, it is our first podcast of 2018, um, Mr.
1: Sullivan. I'm interested. Have you got any New Year's resolutions or anything like that in mind? Well, to be honest, I've never really been one for New Year's resolutions. But um, if you're talking about goals for the year, um, I might be able to say I want to make a substantial sum of money. I want to get really good grades. And maybe hit the gym, but, like, who hits the gym after the first two weeks of <laughs> the year? Um, yeah, you could say those are my goals. Nice. Mm. <sighs> Mainly the grades, of course, because, yeah, university.
0: Okay, so was it? It was grades, gym, and money. money.
1: Yeah, because I'm broke and everyone needs money.
0: Maybe there's a good acronym for that. GMG, money, DOSH, Dar, D, GDG. Oh, it's like GDP. You know, the
1: gross domestic profit. Is Whoa. That well That's like, yeah. Yeah. Gross domestic product. Product. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I know money. I love, I love finance. Oh yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> this is terrible banter. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Very Christian. <efficient. laughs> um, my news resolution, I'm not going to divulge here. You're going to have to wait till the end of the podcast for me to to get those juicy details to be honest I've actually kind of already shared it on the last podcast but you know what whatever I mm. want to do it again because I'm, I'm building up hype guys um, yeah leaving them on a cliffhanger cliffhanger that's it yeah. well look uh, let's go right into our recap then but just before we do if you haven't watched the sermon one Man's sin another man's pleasure go to the link below come back here later because this podcast is full of spoilers With that out of the way, let's go into our quick recap.
1: So the sermon begins by asking an intriguing question. That is, how is it that one man can be completely justified in committing what another man considers to be sin? Or, you know, is it even possible?
0: And so to discover the
1: answer to that question, we have to explore the ancient city of
0: Corinth, known for its debauchery, pagan temples, prostitution, and general immorality. It is here that the Apostle Paul discovers that the Christian Church in Corinth has become divided in their approaches to morality and ethics due to
1: misunderstandings over end-time events. Both groups believe that the Second Coming has already arrived, but come to very different conclusions from there. One group believes that since they must be in heaven, that must mean that they cannot sin, and so indulge in all sorts of debauchery, including visiting prostitutes, dressing like prostitutes to church, and committing heinous sexual sins. The other group veers to the other extreme, believing that
0: anything from which they derive pleasure is sinful, and thus abstain from
1: sex and marriage altogether. And so, Paul explains to the church that although they have inherited eternal life, they have not yet been taken to heaven. Therefore, it is not okay to commit sexual sins and it is okay to engage in marriage. All the while, Paul is emphasizing the importance of mutuality and cooperation in the church in order that they can unite a shared vision.
0: Finally, Paul addresses a clash between the two ethical systems. There is a disagreement over whether or not it is moral to eat meat given to idols. Paul states that such a topic is neither morally good nor morally evil, but is adiaphora, a Greek word for morally
1: inconsequential. He states that since the topic is null and void, the church must be sensitive to the conscience of its believers. Both parties must be willing to compromise and utilize the mutuality he has been emphasizing in order to ensure that no no one's ethical principles are violated and that no one sins.
0: Thus, we are given an important lesson for the church today, to make sure that we do not divide our church over matters which are adiaphora, but instead be sensitive to conscience and realize that one man's sin may just be another man's pleasure. Alright, well, James, I'm interested to hear what was your personal takeaway from this message about morality and ethics and adiaphora.
1: Yeah, I thought, well, the first thing that really surprised me, astounded me, in fact, was that there were some people of faith that believed that um, the Second Coming has already come and that we were in fact in heaven mm. already on earth after such, you know, uh, uh, you know, after the Bible clearly explains that, you know, there's no pain in heaven. Um, and obviously clearly on earth you experienced pain. Like the evidence is there that yeah, it's yeah. obviously <laughs> not heaven, but, um, yeah, it's, in, it's interesting that people came to that conclusion somehow. Mm. Um, it would be interesting to find out how exactly they justified that. Mm. Um, The other thing regarding morals and ethics is um, that idea that um, when things... What was that Greek word starting with A? Adiaphora. Yeah, adiaphora. Yeah, I found that um, a very good kind of take-home message that when it comes to things of adiaphora that aren't very good or bad, it comes down to the individual's conscience. Um, And I think that's both a very pragmatic idea in society, um, uh, both in regards that um, maybe something truly is good or bad, depending on how you conceive of it, Um, Mm. For example, the idea that um, people who live in tribes on islands um, with no connection to um, the Western world or Christianity might be, you know, still taken to heaven when they die because, um, you know, God blesses them as um, unintentionally ignorant or something like that. Sure, sure. And it's kind of the same idea with this. It's like, okay, well, if something is adiaphora, there's no right and wrong. Perhaps it comes down to whether or not you think it's right or wrong and if you do it when you think it is wrong to do it, um, then that might be considered sin. Yeah, Um, exactly. Yeah. And, and the other way around. Um, and I also liked in that regard, the idea of, um, in the social context coming to a mutual, um, consensus or compromise. Um, yeah, I think that's also a very useful thing to have in society, um, because obviously the alternative to that is, um, you know, forever fighting and arguing and you know, basically, just look at politics and apply that to the to the whole, you know, yeah. society. That's what it'll probably basically become. But it's important for, um, in order for us to unite as a society to come to a um, mutual agreement about what things in that adigafora category are right and wrong. Mm. Um, so that you know we can all be united under the, the same ethics. For sure. Um, otherwise, we'll just keep dividing ourselves until you know we're nothing.
0: Mm-mm. I'm glad that you actually mentioned the uh, to begin with, um, how did these people actually think they were here at the second coming? And that uh, fits right into our, that's a nice segue into our next segment, uh, the cutting room floor and all those topics that you mentioned about the unity and division stuff. Uh, stick around listeners because that is going to be largely what we're going to look at in the cutting room floor. We're going to look at some of the issues today which are uh, threatening to divide the church and how we can navigate those. So, with, uh, with that said, let's get into the main meat of our podcast, The Cutting Room Floor. What is that, James?
1: Well, The Cutting Room Floor is the segment where we discuss the parts of the sermon that didn't make it into the final product and break them down. Nice. All right. So let's begin with this idea
0: of how is it that these people could think that they're in heaven when, yeah, clearly they're not. Right. And it's really easy to look at the people, you know, 2000 years ago and just be like, oh, people back then were silly. But you really only have to look back about 150 years or so, uh, give or take, and you find another example of this exact same mentality. Um, in America, there was a resurgence of Protestant Christianity, and there was seemed to be this obsession in end time events. And... um Around in the 1800s, there was this man called William Miller. And he believed that he'd figured out this uh, prophecy in Daniel, which specified the time of Jesus' second coming. Mm-hmm. And so he predicted, he goes, all right, 1844, that's when God's going to come. Well, uh, yeah, God hasn't come. Yeah, obviously. 2018 yep. hasn't come. Um, and so once they'd figured out that he'd interpreted this wrong, You had a division of two people. You had one group who believed that the date was correct, but uh, Miller had completely uh, gotten the interpretation of the prophecy wrong. And those people would later begin to found uh, the Adventist church. And then you had a group of people who believed that the interpretation was correct. And so they said, well, Jesus has come, but like, in a spiritual way. Yeah. And they were referred to as the spiritualizers. And so, what you had with some men, because uh, the Bible says uh, the institution of marriage isn't in heaven, some guys would just go, Oh, okay, well, for in heaven, see your wife and kids, and they just like ditch their families. And mm-hmm. then other people would grab that verse where Jesus metaphorically says, If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be like a child. There we go, it's a simile like, like a child, <laughs> not be a child. And so, these people read that verse and they just went, all right, time to crawl around like a baby. And they just walk around their homes crawling around, acting like kids. And so you had oh, all man. these... Oh, man, imagine
1: that. That's just
0: terrible. Imagine just knocking on the door and be like, hey, Jedediah, Jedediah. <laughs> yeah. You open up at the door and there he is, with this Amish beard and he's looking at you. Crawling yeah, around. crawling on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> like his, his napkin on it. Yeah, head. <laughs> and he just looks at you and he says, the kingdom of heaven is near. <laughs> and you just go, ah, Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that gives a great impression. Yeah, yeah yeah, yeah yeah great,
0: great representation of the church. yeah, yeah. Um, And so you had all these people doing these crazy things because they were convinced that God had come on earth, all spiritually. So I think that helps us to make sense a bit more of how these people thought of it, because it, it appears to be a re- recurring event in history. People seem to think that despite their physical surroundings not reflecting heaven, that the kingdom of heaven has come inside. And it's all Mm -hmm. very spiritual. So, yeah, that's how we can kind of begin to have a better understanding of how the Corinthian church seemed to fall into this trap of misunderstanding their eschatology. Mm -hmm. Um, So next, I want to look at some different items of adiaphora, basically. And um, I didn't get a chance to look at all of these, but I think they're important, especially for our church uh, right now, because many of these... At the moment, are dividing a lot of churches. Let's start off with one that's a little little easier. Uh, Let's wade our way in. This is a little toe dip first. Um, Tattoos, Mr. Sullivan. Mm -hmm. If you were to ever get a tattoo, where where would it be, and what would it be?
1: Oh, I don't know. I have have no idea. This is hypothetical, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'd get something simple, um, probably very small, and probably quite concealed. I don't know, maybe on my toe, I'd get, like, a pineapple. <laughs> I was saying, I th- like... I think a pineapple on my toe would be uh, pretty cool. Like, on the knuckle part, or, like, yeah. underneath? Uh, oh, no, on the knuckle part. On the knuckle part, okay. Yeah, but yeah, but I'd have to wax the hair off it or something first. <laughs> or maybe, like, on my thumb or something, on, on the... Um, like, near my wrist part of my thumb, I'd get, like, a little banana. But
0: why like a pineapple or a banana? Aren't you going to get sick of people going, hey, cool pineapple, bro. What's that for?
1: Well, I have no idea what else to put there. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, a pineapple or a banana seem like the most simple and, you know, quirky tattoo kind of things to have. I don't want anything too serious from getting a tattoo because, you know, serious things tend to die out after 10 years. Yeah, that's you know, true. Because your, your concept of what's serious and what's funny kind of morphs changes, but pineapples will always be funny. They're a constant. There. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like I'll be 60-year-olds and i look at this pineapple on my toe and I'll be like, yeah, that's pretty funny. <laughs> I reckon. See, I was having a discussion
0: with a friend recently about this and I decided, not the back, because I think backs are gross, mm. not the stomach, so that leaves me with kind of like my arms and legs, but I want it to be concealed. And so the two good places, if you want to hide it, I reckon you can put one on your wrist, right? And you can just wear a watch. Oh, yeah. Or just put it, like, at the bottom of your foot. But, man, that'd be ticklish as heck, right? To, like, (laughs) get a tattoo. Yeah, to get a tattoo. I wouldn't be able to do it. I just... No, the whole time. And I don't know what... I don't know. I don't... I I actually cannot think of anything that, um... is really that important. That I want... I would want to permanently ink it to myself. I don't know. No, I don't think any of that kind
1: of stays with you your whole life, to be honest.
0: No. Well... That's a perfect segue to get into why this topic is probably a little bit adiaphora. I'm happy for people to, um, you know, contend with me on this one, but here's basically the idea that I've come towards. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of Christians have asked me, and I know it's a common question. They go, is it, you know, okay for a Christian to get a tattoo? And most people will point to this verse in Leviticus 28 that says, do not get a tattoo, right? Hmm. However, comma, the verse says, do not cut your bodies or tattoo your bodies for the dead. So really the context is talking about is basically these pagan rituals. Now, when you go down to the ink shop, you're not thinking of doing this in a pagan ritual. You're not doing it for the dead. You're not looking at it as self harm or anything like this. It's just like, oh, hey, wouldn't this be cool? So I think the Leviticus verse is not the strongest argument that you can use if you want to oppose getting tattoos. I think that what we see in the church of Corinth is a way better way of looking at it. So, um, for example, uh, as we said, the Libertines, they just thought to themselves, oh, hey, if we're in heaven, I to dress how I want. I'm going to dress with my hair down, which was um, the way that the prostitutes in Corinth dressed. Yeah. And Paul was like, okay, 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 look, there's nothing wrong with wearing your hair down, but there is in this city. Mm. In the culture that you're in at the moment, you're offending the people, and you're also not creating a good impression for the church. And I think in a similar way, you can apply that principle. And tattoos have a, a social stigma in our society as well. And mm-hmm. even depending on where in the body it is and what it is, you give an impression of who you are because we have these mindsets of, oh, you, you know, you see a guy with a full-on sleeve, you're like, oh, geez, he's tough. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, we have all these stereotypes and... Um, associations with people who have tattoos Mm. and so i think in the same way you could say well look there's uh, there might not be anything wrong with actually you know inking your skin but it doesn't create a good impression of the church or it gives a false impression of the church or the people around you in your culture may not be appreciative of it so i think that's actually a better argument as to why a christian shouldn't get a tattoo um namely through the fact that yeah, it doesn't quite fit in with the culture
1: that we have. And it,
0: yeah, doesn't give, yeah. well, it, yeah. it carries
1: a kind of meaning it does. Um, based on social context. Um, and I think that a lot of ethics come down to that as well. Like a lot of, um, out of your type, um, ethical principles, um, might come down to, um, what your conscience thinks is right and wrong. And then your conscience might be predicated on the social, um, uh, like the the socio cultural um, factors as well, mm. um, like I don't know if if, uh, if if a society deems circumcision as a sin, and you go and you know get your kids circumcised, that might be um, wrong in that culture. Mm. Um, yeah, um, when it comes to giving a bad impression of the church, I think that's actually a very good reason not to get a tattoo. Yeah, you you can also express yourself. In ways that you disagree with society, you know. So maybe you think that people who get tattoos are really friendly people, um, who are really nice and accepting and loving, and um, you know. Or and if you think that and you get a tattoo and you disagree with the rest of society, um, that's probably just as okay because it doesn't violate your conscience in any way. Um, however, when it comes to you being part of a community and then you you giving a bad image of that community um, by your own choice, um, that's something that you definitely have to consider before, mm. um, expressing yourself in a certain way, because you're not expressing yourself as an individual then, but as part of, um, the community to which you belong.
0: Yeah. You're a representative. You're like an ambassador. Right. Um, I had, a, I had one of my lecturers last year tell me this. Uh, he said one of his old lecturers gave him this challenge. You know how like, uh, bishops or whatever, you know, the old school types, they have that, Weird thing around their neck the black and white thing. Oh, yeah, uh, he called it the dog collar <laughs> and yeah. He says all right I challenge you guys to wear the dog collar for a week and see how differently you act, right? Because when you just like dress anonymously and no one knows that you're a Christian or whatever You probably act differently But when you have this mindset that oh man, everyone knows that the dog collar means I'm a pastor I really got to watch the way I act you act a whole lot differently because now you're representing a people.
1: Right. And you wouldn't go tattoo 666 on your cheek because, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, because you feel like that's a special number to you that means, you know, like so it's, it's like your aunt's birthday and, uh, you know, but yeah. So you have to take into consideration yeah, how other people are going to interpret what you represent as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, And like, is it kind of, Unfortunate that you have to, you know, it's not just you, but you have to think of other people. I mean, like, sh- whatever. It's a bit of an inconvenience, right? But the fact of the matter is that you probably will end up inconveniencing someone with your conscience. Well, yeah, that's why it matters. That, exactly. Yeah. And so you, it has to be this mutual reciprocation in the church. It's self-sacrificing. It's being selfless for the other people.
1: Right. Um. Yeah. Like you may you you may not care about being judged for having a tattoo but maybe the other people who people associate with you will be judged by you having a tattoo and by you belonging to the same community as them. Mm. Um, and so you're putting not only yourself, but someone else on the line, um, you know, to you know, to have that consequence applied to them.
0: Yeah. Just as, this is a quick bonus. I'm reading into this text. Like, this is not what the text is about, but I just thought it was a bit funny. In 2 uh, Corinthians, uh, Paul is talking about how some people are boasting about these letters of recommendation that they have as really cool apostles. And here's what he says um, in Second Corinthians chapter 3, um, verse 1. He says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need as some others epistles or commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. So, like, I'm reading into it, but Hmm. what he's talking about is he says, the best testimony that you can give for God's life is not a bit of paper that says, I've been recommended as a really good apostle for Jesus. Here's how many people I have baptized. He says the real testimony is transformation of people's hearts. And he says... Um yeah it's written on flesh, written on the heart, not on stone and not with ink. I just love that he says ink specifically, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I think like you could apply that I, I again, I'm reading into it, but I think you could apply that to people who like write hectic Bible verses in you know Greek or Hebrew on their arms or whatever, yeah, you know, like this will remind me of jesus yeah it's uh like yeah, adipho, and all that, but the it's more important that you show people not by this outward way of oh here's what jesus did for me and here's an obscure bible verse it's Mm -hmm. more important
1: that you demonstrate that transformation in the heart and through your life so much more important that because demonstrating that through your heart actually has an impact on society someone else sees a bible verse written on your arm and they think okay cool that's a cool bible verse you know Um, that guy must be a christian but you know you show them you know the christian heart and then they might actually be influenced by that and that actually has a broader effect than simply you know writing down a, a verse and then displaying it to the world mm. i mean you know you might as well just give them the bible if you're going to do that yeah yeah um, yeah,
0: yeah. you're only giving them the one verse give them the whole thing <laughs> <ladies>. <laughs> pretty much so, why are you limiting it so much oh man yeah. i would love it if someone started a ministry right they just like tattooed like a psalm a whole psalm or like the gospel of john on their back or whatever <laughs> just walk around the streets with their back off and people like coming and reading yeah someone start that ministry please uh, yeah not me that'd I'm be not... very fun to watch <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the reason why people do it, of course, is because, um, you know, they feel strongly about something and want to express it, and definitely, you know, all empathy to that. Um, yeah, you want to express who you are in terms of your fashion, so you buy certain clothes, and it's the same thing with tattoos. You want to express that you're um, a very devout Christian. You might tattoo a Bible verse or a cross on yourself. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's not the most legitimate way to express um, true Christianity. Mm. Um, it might be a way. Um, but yeah, like you said, if you really want to make that expression, do it through the heart. Mm. Um, yeah.
0: Nice. Well, let's go to our next topic. Uh Oh, we're getting contentions. What? See, this is, I didn't I wasn't planning for this to be the edgy episode, but by the very nature of us picking all the things which people argue about, we're kind of becoming the edgy episode. So that's just the nature of it. Oh, well, the next topic that we're going to look at. Is women's ordination and um, for those listeners who don't know it's a big debate at the moment uh, because essentially ordination refers to uh, do you have authority to be a pastor in the church Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a big debate over whether women should be allowed to be pastors or not and uh, here's my two cents about the idea and I believe that women's ordination and ordination in general with pastors comes in adiaphora. Here's why: if you look throughout the Bible, you will not find the word pastor. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look in the early church, they did not have pastors. Right. Pastors are a new invention of Protestantism. Over at least a millennia and a half after the early church, we came up with this idea. Instead. The early church was led by elders or some translations will say bishops. And it just meant like a group of people who run the church together. There wasn't like this one guy. Mm -hmm. And when you think of people like Paul and the other apostles, they weren't pastors. They were apostles or we would likely call them uh, like evangelists. They would travel around and do stuff, Mm -hmm. but there wasn't like this one guy in charge who called all the shots that was called a pastor. And so what I think is interesting is people keep trying to use these biblical arguments to both support and both oppose, um, ordination. But to me, it's just kind of like we're arguing over a non-biblical issue. Mm. So I don't really think you can use biblical principles to argue for a non-biblical issue. Um, my preference would be that we not only not have women pastors, but we don't have male pastors either. I would really like to see the church go back to the early church model where we didn't have pastors and instead the church was run by elders. That'd be great. Mm -hmm. And then if we want to continue with the early church model, fire your pastor, rehire him as an evangelist, get these people traveling around and doing stuff like that. And when the, when the lay people or just like the congregation, the elders become responsible for the church and not the pastor, they become way more self-sufficient and mm-hmm. more self-motivated um so to me i think that issue comes in adiaphora because again it's like well, the bible doesn't say anything about pastors so can't really argue whether it's good or bad it's just like a thing we made up
1: right so yeah. you can yeah so you can do whatever you want with it yeah
0: well here's the thing i would rather we just again the, the ideal would be to eliminate the role of pastor because ideally ideally because at the moment a lot of churches um are getting they're close to splitting over this issue and whether mm-hmm. regardless of whether pe- they end up saying yes or they say no, people are going to be unhappy. Right. Mm. And so I think that split in some cases may be inevitable, which sucks because this is exactly what Paul was trying to stop situations like this. Yeah. Splitting over dumb stuff. that is just like, eh, nothing It's Yeah. Way. Um, But I think the other thing we need to take into consideration as well, and I want to say this, um, I think too many people expect change too quickly. Uh, I think we need to be patient as we transition into these ideas, right? Right. Because we've had pastors for a long time now. This is heavily ingrained and entrenched in not only our traditions, but basically in our global organization as a church. This is the way it runs on a global scale. Yeah, it takes time to change something like that, you know. Um, and not only that, but the mindsets of people need to change. So I think, uh, we need to understand that progress can be slow, Mm. but, um, I think that gradual burn is what we kind of need. You know, you can't just change an entire organization and the attitudes of people overnight It has to be something gradual. Right. Um, and furthermore, we have to work with the system that we currently have. Like, I, I like to say, um, dem- dem- democracy is like the best, worst option we have. Yeah. That's <laughs> it's a really good saying. Yeah. yeah. It, it's not ideal, but it's the best thing we've got. Like, there's not really a perfect system of government. So I'll take democracy over anything else. Thank you very much. Right. In the same way.
1: It's it's the one that's the least catastrophic. Yeah. Yeah. It's the <laughs> least bad. way. Yeah. yeah. It's
0: like a necessary evil. Cause it's like, well, it's less evil than that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so in the same way, like, for example, people could point the finger at me and go, this is rich coming from you, Christopher, studying to be a pastor, saying, I wish we didn't have pastors. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, uh, myself and everyone else called to ministry, basically our options right now are to either go into chaplaincy or pastorship. We have to work within the best, worst option that we have. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's it at the moment. Those are the options that we have. And I know that God has called myself, and I know many people who I study my course with have amazing testimonies of God calling them as well. So you can't deny the fact that if God's calling all these people, he wants them to be in pastoring or in chaplaincy. So he wants them right. in the best, worst option that we have right now.
1: Yeah. Um, how, how cool will it be if as we approach that splitting of the churches um, or the churches just decided to revert back to the Old, you know, elders with the church kind oh, of system. Yeah. That'd be <laughs> to, a, to prevent the splitting of the churches. See, that'd
0: be great. But if I'm like in my third or fourth year, and they're just like, "All right, no more pastors," we're like, "Oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> church, yeah. please wait till you split after I finish my degree." Thank you, <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll come in and swoop and save the day. That that's all happening, right? Yeah. Now, nah, I, I, honestly, uh, for me, I'd be more than happy for that because uh, for quite a while. This is not really, this is a bit of a tangent, but one of the things that, uh, really got me not wanting to study ministry was I was more interested in being an evangelist than a pastor. I was more interested in reaching the unchurched than the already churched. And so basically I came to terms with the idea of it being best, worst option, right? So I would actually be overjoyed if when I came out of my course, I said, Hey, you know what, instead of being a pastor, we'd like to hire you as an evangelist man that'd be great yeah, that, right. you know well,
1: if you can come out being you know best uh prospective pastor, then maybe you can be you know just maybe just when when what pastors go they can just put you as an evangelist exactly so I think
0: that's something that our church should strive towards um look this is just my two cents I could be completely wrong I'm not professing to be uh, an expert or anything on this, but I have put some uh thought into it, and yeah, I think that's where I think this is such an important message for our church to hear, uh, to not divide over things like this, but to try and find that mutual agreement and unity.
1: Mm, yep.
0: Nice. And then our last topic, oof, the the juiciness just continues. It's so controversial. Mm. We have worship. James. Yes. How do you feel about getting
1: in a mosh pit and... Oh, <laughs> man. Putting your hands up and just... Raven. Well, that, that's always fun, but what <laughs> might be funner is uh, Christian Screamo. Uh, that's always fun. You know, you go to like a heavy metal rock band yes. and, and Christian it out. will you, you know, do this, you know, make the cross fingers. <laughs> you know, that might be um, a true sign of uh, my worship. I definitely feel it. You definitely feel it? You yeah, get, I, that... I definitely feel it in every scream. That bass or, drop, or the you Christian. feel
0: the Holy Spirit come when the bass drops, yeah, <laughs> specifically? Yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, man. I think the only the only time I've I've listened to Christian screamo and the one line I remember is from this one song and basically the lady just comes up to the mic and says "I will" <laughs> <laughs> like this and it's like ah! "I'm sprinkling holy water in the corners of my room I'm, I'm clearing my browser history yeah. <laughs> I'm getting rid of it now. It, yeah was it just is this, something man yeah it's something um yeah, worship is one of those really divisive issues in the church. How do you do it? You know, what's the proper way? And um, Well, the thing is with
1: Christian Screamo is that the, the nature of the art reflects what it represents. And, yeah. and if the nature of your art is going to be screaming at the top of your lungs, I'm not sure that that represents, you know, reverent <laughs> worship. <laughs> well, oh, I'm
0: glad that you mentioned that. Hold on to reverent worship. We'll come back to that in a tick. Yeah, um, okay. i'm really glad you picked that up uh first of all i would like to ask how would you define worship just like off the top of your head
1: oh i hate defining words yeah <laughs> uh, oh man it's like that time in school when you know, jesse thomas asked me to define hope and i was like oh yeah really you want we're going to define hope I'm oh like, is
0: that when they came around with the camera yeah oh my
1: gosh i can't believe i remember I, I went home and i racked my brain for 25 minutes trying to think like how do you? How the heck do you define hope? Uh, i
0: haven't such a silly answer. To it. Sorry, listeners, that's a really inside reference. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, Shout out to CCS kids.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, Drop us
0: a like if you remember Jesse
1: Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> sure, everyone re- uh, remembers Jesse Thomas. Legend, Absolute legend. It. Jesse Thomas. Okay. Um, uh, how do you? How do you define worship? Mm. Worship is dedicating a part of. Um, you could say your being or your time or some construct of your being, um, to, um, usually for a time, um, to something greater, um, that you have reverence towards, I would say. Mm. Um, yeah.
0: I like that. Can I build upon that? I'm yeah, going to make sure. it a bit more all encompassing. So you said like a portion of your body or something like that. What was it again?
1: Yeah. Something like, um, you know, taking part of your being, it's like people will dedicate their mind or their heart. Um, or you know stuff like that, um, yeah. And you do that for a period of time towards um, uh, a greater DT um, or thing. Um,
0: yeah, man, man, I love this. It's, we didn't script this, but you've put, give me the perfect segue. I love this. Right. So, oh, great! <laughs> um, <laughs> this just keeps happening. In uh, Deuteronomy, I'm pretty sure there's this thing called the Shema. And it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul, something like that. Uh, I always forget the order. But you've got heart and mind in there, right? And then it would be soul. It would be soul, because soul refers to the complete whole person as a a being.
1: Yeah, I think that's what I meant by being.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so it's interesting that worship encompasses your entire being. So you give your heart, which is all your emotions and feelings, and your mind, everything that you're thinking, and your thoughts, and all Mm. this. Yeah, And then your soul is just like everything else. Um, and interestingly that you said portion of time, I'm going to elaborate on that, but what are some ways that you can, you know, love the Lord, your God with all your hearts and mind and soul? Uh, we often restrict worship to just like lifting up your hands and seeing some songs, playing some sick riffs on the guitar.
1: Yeah.
0: But worship really is just the way that you live life. Um, so you can do it through stewardship, which is taking care of the gifts that God's given you and putting you in charge of, um just using your spiritual gifts and service by loving others. You
1: demonstrate the love of God. You're loving God by doing what he says. Um, would you consider that dedicating your mind or your heart to things like if, if like regarding stewardship, um, let's say you go on like a a project in the mm. name of God, um, that would also be dedicating or your time and your body and your mind and your heart um, towards something. And that is all encompassed by this worship idea. Exactly. For sure. Yeah. Uh, you
0: also have like prayer, uh, reading the Bible, spending time with God, um, going to church, keeping the Sabbath. And uh, here's one people don't often think about, marriage. Marriage itself is um, an act of worship to God because it reflects the love of God and his people, right? And so in loving your spouse uh, and demonstrating that same love, you're once again reflecting back up to God and worshiping him. Mm -hmm. So having a good and healthy marriage is a good and healthy way of worship. Mm-hmm. And so then music and singing and praise is just one way in which we uh, give our worship. And so really, if we understand worship to be basically everything we do in our life, it's not just for one portion of time, it's all the time. Right. Um, and here's the interesting thing. We we argue so much about like the order or the style of music or whatever, but... The Bible never prescribes anything for worship. Um, it just says, "Just love me with heart, mind, and soul." Mm. It doesn't say, "All right, you're gonna have a invocation, then you're gonna have three hymns, then I want a children's story, yeah, uh, and then you're all gonna stand up for this one, and then you're gonna bow down on one knee, uh, bat bow, bow down on one knee with patting your head and rubbing your tummy, and then like, there's no prescription right. for it." which is I think very intentional because what it allows for is for Christianity to go into whatever culture it is in and then adapt to that. It says like, okay, well, how do you guys, you know, do worship? All right, make it work for you.
1: Yeah, it's whatever way the people of a society can dedicate their hearts, minds and souls. Um, Yeah, so some cultures um, have people with different, Um, You could say their hearts are of a different nature, Mm. or their thoughts are in different places. And, um, yeah, so obviously that's going to carry some variance across cultures in the way that they conduct worship.
0: Exactly. And what's interesting is when you look at other religions that prescribe worship, they are very locked into the place where they originated from. The spread is hard. For example, uh, Islam. Like, how many white people do you see joining Islam?
1: Yeah, um... (laughs) Yeah, not a lot. (laughs) Yeah.
0: It's mostly people from the Middle Eastern areas because it's, the religion is very entrenched in their culture. I mean, they would say you cannot properly read the Quran unless you read it in their language. If you Mm. read like an English translation, you're not reading the real Quran. Mm. Like that's how entrenched in the culture, uh, the religion is Hinduism. I think I could be off on this, but I think it's 98% of the Hindu population is in India.
1: Yeah, that's, well, yeah. <clears throat> that's how locked it is, because it just can't escape. There might be a point where religion actually becomes, like, intrinsically tied to the culture and then can't be applied to other cultures. Mm, that's it. Yeah.
0: And that's what a lot, of these con- uh, a lot of these religions, like Hinduism, have become, just locked into where they are, whereas...
1: Yeah, the, the religion actually becomes the culture. Oh, for sure. Yeah.
0: Um, especially in India, like, they have the, the idea of the caste system. That is a social order... Which is based upon the ideas of karma and dharma and reincarnation, mm. completely entrenched in the religious beliefs. Yeah, uh, and so yeah, the Bible never really gives us any prescribed order or method. So, uh, what does it do then? You mentioned something before—a reverential attitude. Do you want to elaborate on that a bit? What What are you thinking when you say? I mean, what are you thinking when you say that?
1: reverence. It's kind of a, um, a, a kind of special respect or glory given to something which you consider as above yourself. Um, yeah, I guess that's the best way I can put it. It's kind of like a, it's a, it's a bit like subservience. Mm. Um, but, um, yeah, kind of like a deep form of, uh, respect and, um, submittance, I guess, to a high being. Yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, and what's interesting is, I'm glad that you mentioned this idea of, I, th- I like that you said attitude of reverence. Um, mm. Because as opposed to specific methods of worship, the Bible prescribes attitudes. And one of them is reverence. Um, the Hebrew word often used is shakar, and it means to bow down prostrate, like on the ground. So you're showing respect. Yeah. And in the Greek, the word for worship used is often uh, proskuneo. Proskuneo? Yeah, proskuneo which just means like to kiss the hand of someone. So now the another gesture of demonstrating respect. Um, mm-hmm. another attitude that, uh, worship can't have is it can't be focused on yourself, right? Because yeah. Immediately. As soon as it becomes focused on self, um, you've stopped being worshipped. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's violated the definition. And, yeah. um, for, oh, I'm going to tread on a few toes here. Uh, Okay. So, um, I recently, uh, had been listening to some of these Hillsong songs, got nothing against Hillsong, they're fine, but there was this one song, um, I think it's, this is living. And in the middle of it, they have this like minute long rap where like the song basically stops, all the singers stop and one guy just does this long rap Mm -hmm. and I got to see a performance of this. And what I noticed was everyone's, you know, clapping and cheering for the guy rapping and I kind of thought to myself, I feel like for that minute, we kind of lost the idea of worship. Right. Uh, we were all clapping and cheering that guy doing the rap. Right. We weren't clapping and cheering for God or cheering about the lyrics because of God. We we're all going, yeah, man, you can do it. Whoa, sick rap. It's right. like, oh, I feel like we, yeah, we lost the spirit of worship in that little minute there.
1: Yeah, um, no, definitely. It's, it's the same thing with the Pope. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, as soon as the, um, you could say the messenger, what do you say, the representative of God, um, becomes more important than God himself, at least in the eyes of a few people for a short period of time, or maybe for a long period of time. Hmm. Um, yeah. Worship. Yeah. It violates the definition of worship then. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, uh, finally...
1: I, th- I think, sorry. So yeah. yeah, go for it. Go for it. Yeah. I think maybe a better way to clap and cheer for the guy rapping wouldn't be to clap for the guy rapping that per se, but, um, to, you know, if, even like look up at the sky, whatever you want to do, like clap and cheer towards God in the name or well not in the name, but you know, as a result of the message given from the guy mm. rapping. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it's
0: interesting, Hey, how, how quickly we switch from one to the other, like one minute, we're like, yeah, Jesus. And then a guy gets a message. of like, yeah, rapper guy. Yeah, <laughs> and then he goes
1: back and we're like, yeah,
0: Jesus. Like, yeah, <laughs> our, our attention is so like quickly taken away. We're just like, oh, 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 what's next? What's next? Yeah, it's just funny. right.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, the the stage and the whole setup of the um the the stadium or whatever is pointing to the guy rapping. It's not really pointing to God. Mm. Um, so uh, you know the words will say point you know point your worship to God, and we'll follow that. But then we'll look at the stage, and we'll look at the guy rapping, and he's in a like high position on this podium area, and yeah, yeah. Um, you know, with big loud voice, and we're like, hey, you know, in our subconscious, we're like, he represents God, mm. you know, and maybe we see him as more clearly godlike than God himself. So when kinda, the lyrics stop,
0: we kind of like project right that worship onto him because we're like, oh, hey, something I can see. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So we'll, we just follow the the context of the environment. Mm. And yeah, if the lyrics say point to God, we'll point to God and if the lyrics say point to me, we'll point to them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and it really shows how powerful music is as well. Hey, like
1: you can just say in the song, you know, do this and you're like, oh God. Then, yeah. Oh, definitely. Especially when there's you know, plenty of emotions involved. Yeah. Uh, there's this idea that music is basically um, a concentrated form of meaning um, in all of the forms of meaning usually uh, carried through emotion. And so, uh, yeah, you know, through tones. So when you say words through language, um, you can say it in an angry tone or a sad tone or a happy tone, and then you take those tones and you can actually make a melody out of them, and then you put them into a song as a concentrated form of the meaning behind, those, uh, behind that language. Mm. So meaning is definitely a very powerful thing, and I think that's why we use it for, for worship. Um, however, that power can also be, be used, um, you know, to point us away from worship just as easily, and I think that's what a lot of people get wrong when they start, you know, going into things like Christian Screamo, yeah. um, especially for the wrong reasons. Mm. But like, if you really feel in your heart, um, um, like, if you really feel in your heart that Christian Screamo is, is <laughs> the best way to dedicate your mind, heart and soul to the Lord himself, then by all means, um, you know, if, if you feel, if you feel like it, you know, listening to Christian Screamo or, or singing, singing, screaming to you, I don't know, screaming Christian, screaming. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, screamo, um, makes you feel a powerful form of reverence, um, towards God, then I guess by all means, that's your, that's the way that you worship. Um, but hard to do when you're screaming at the top mm-hmm. of your lungs. So let's
0: say it, let's put it, let's put it in anaphora and then say, all right, so if other people don't appreciate Christian screamo, maybe don't pump it up to 11 when they're in
1: your car. <laughs> yeah. You could yeah, say that's, well, that's the, the mutual social compromise. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's a good one. Yeah. Um, and then finally, the last thing that the Bible tells us about worship is the content. Uh, your content needs to be focused on Jesus. Uh, if it's not focused on Jesus or not focused on God, then again, you've lost the point of worship. As soon as it focuses on something or someone else, you're not even trying. And, mm. Um, so, really, that's all that we get uh, told about with worship. We're never told what type of songs, what style. It's supposed to, worship is supposed to reflect, to a point, you know, the culture that we live in. Not in, like, ah, oh jeez, now people are going to take it out of context now. <laughs> yeah. Not in, like, the ideals of the culture, but just, like, you know, the style or whatever, you know. That's just how we express ourselves. So, of course, naturally, we express ourselves uh, in the same way to God. So as long as that style does not violate uh, a reverential attitude, as long as it maintains the uh, notion of worship being centered on Jesus and not on self Mm. and is purely about God, then that's fine. Um, The early Christian church, they literally just like ripped the Jewish synagogue system and was like, all right, this is what we do now. Yeah. In Europe, you know, they turned into, like, the Gregorian chants and stuff because that's just what music was. They reflected the time. Um, in fact, in the early medieval church, organs weren't allowed for a long time because uh, they were used in, um, oh, I forget where, but they were seen as, like, this new fangled instrument. It was like, you can't, it's the devil's instrument, you know? Really? Yeah. Um But, organs. In, but inter, yeah, organs of all things. Yeah. But, like, you see people like Martin Luther, he would grab secular songs and put Christian lyrics to them. Or, um, in the early Adventist church, they would actually write songs that were kind of like, um, bar songs. They, they had the, um, the exact same tune as like a typical bar song, Mm. but were actually about not drinking and not smoking. (laughs) It was really interesting. So you use it, you use the things in your surrounding culture just to express yourself, you know, it makes sense. And so as long as it doesn't violate those, uh, Things that the Bible says, you're fine. Euphoria, you know.
1: Right. It's yeah. It's whatever. You have to adapt um, the ideas to the fashion of the, you know that's prevalent in the culture. Um, in the same way that um, you could say that if you were comparing a kid from America or the United Kingdom to a kid in, um, you know, some tribe on an island far away, um, you know, some in, or in the Amazon or something, um, you know, the idea might be you know, go and wield your sword and fight and so in the uk the kid might dream of carrying a sword and shield and you know attacking a dragon or something but in but in the amazon jungle the kid might think you know carry his bow and arrow you know and sneak around the trees and and you know it's the same idea it's Mm. just represented in a different fashion yes and um yeah as long as you keep the ideas consistent i don't think it matters what fashion you represent it in um yeah which is why god doesn't say specifically worship in this way
0: And the other thing is, your relationship with God is personal, right? You interact differently with one friend than you do with another. And, uh, like, so, for example, me and my brothers share the same father, but our relationships will be different. We'll treat him differently, you know. We have a unique relationship. So, in the same way, it makes sense that we all express ourselves differently to God. Mm -hmm. And, as you said, if the ideas are there, why not, you know? Right. Yeah. So... Those are all our topics of adiaphora. The last thing I want to do is just a quick little caveat. Uh, the book of Corinthians is actually full of these things called Pauline slogans. Uh, and essentially what they are is... No, sorry, Corinthian slogans. And essentially the Corinthians had all these little quips or sayings. Mm-hmm. And Paul will quote them throughout the book. And so it's really hard to tell whether... one of the, Some of the things that Paul writes is him talking. Or one of these... Uh, Sketchy Corinthian slogans. Yeah. And you can find entire charts where people are like, all right, this verse is, this verse isn't. There's no consensus. It's yeah. so difficult. Because think about this, you know, when you write a letter, you're not like, hey, remember this thing you said? Yeah. You just quote them because you just go, ah, oh, they'll understand what I mean. Right. So when the church in Corinth reads it, they go, hey, there's our slogan. Oh, he just shredded it. Yeah. Whereas when we read it 2,000 years later, we're like, um, I go, that's weird for you to say, Paul. Yeah when really he's quoting the Corinthians. Right. And I think my favorite one is um, 1 Corinthians 7 verses like 1 and 2. He says, uh, regarding what you wrote to me, now here's, do you phrase it like this? Regarding what you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So he's saying, is it like you asked me, here's my answer, or is it regarding what you wrote to me, a man should not touch a woman. Yeah. As in you were the ones who quoted it. Because the Greek has no punctuation, it's so hard yeah. to tell. But then you read the rest of the context and you go, oh, okay, he's quoting them. This is the aesthetics. They think it's bad. And he has to convince them that it's good. Yeah. But so many people read that and are just like, oh, okay, I guess it's good for a man not to touch a woman. You're just like, oh, no. Context context matters. (laughs) Context, please. Good Mm. good hermeneutics, thanks. But, yeah, so if you want, uh, I recommend having a bit of a Google. And uh, you'll find some stuff about the Corinthian slogans. It's an interesting topic. And... I'll let you be the judges to which verses are Paul and which ones are the church in Corinth.
1: All right, so Christopher, do you have any recommended
0: readings? Yep, I'm going to recommend um, this article. It's called Eating Idle Meat in Corinth, Enduring Principles from Paul's Instructions. And it's by Robert L. Plummer. Uh, you'll find he goes a lot more into the historical context of uh, 1 Corinthians 8. And he does go over a lot of the similar uh, information that you found here. But I think it's always good to hear from two different people and be able to integrate the two different perspectives that they offer. So if you want to learn a bit more about 1 Corinthians 8 and Ediephora, I highly recommend checking that out. Um, Alright, so Chris, where can people find you? Well, they can find me here every fortnight on the After 7 Podcast, which is now available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and all those juicy, nice places. Sweet. Thank you so much for supporting us, guys, and listening in with us today. We hope you've been blessed as we've discussed some ethics, some morality, some adiaphora, uh, as we look at the sermon, One Man's Sin, Another Man's Pleasure. Uh, okay. Make sure to come back in a fortnight for our next episode. <coughs> oh, jeez. <coughs> Make sure to come back for our next episode in the next fortnight. And with that said, have a good one and good night. Good night.